Thank you so much for uh, that introduction. Thank you, New Life, for having me today. I want to extend greetings from your brothers and sisters at All Nations Community Church. We've had Pastor Will and Elder Alex in the past guest speak for us, and so, um, yeah, it's an honor to be able to reciprocate and, and serve you guys, especially on the last week of Pastor Will's sabbatical. Uh, if it's okay, I want to say hello to a couple of people. I want to say hello to Elder Andy and Ann. Uh, Andy was uh, one of my disciplers at USC uh, through our campus ministry. He's the guy who made me memorize the books of the New Testament. I still have that song singing through my head when I'm like looking for Titus, and I'm like, oh. anyways. Uh, so I'm so grateful for him, the role that he's played in my faith formation. Uh, I want to say hello to Paul and uh, Lauren Choi. They are like spiritual parents to me and my wife, Alice, and so it is such a joy uh, to see y'all as well. And um, and obviously, as you know, uh, that was shared, Sarah Yu, my wonderful sister-in-law, it's a blessing to be able to worship with you. Uh, my son Seth knows her as uh, Sticker Emo. Uh, she brings a whole bunch of stickers every time, uh, every time she comes over, and then I'm cleaning them up and finding them in random places for the next couple of days. And so, uh, although this is the first time uh, I'm visiting your church, uh, I can truly say that this community is dear to me. Uh, I have so much affection for you, my friends. As we get into the word of God, would, we, uh, would you turn with me to Hosea chapter 2, verses 16 to 19. Hosea chapter 2, verses 16 to 19. This is going to be our first passage for today, and then later in the message I will uh, read Ephesians 5 for us. But may God bless the reading of his holy and matchless word. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the bales from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Amen. The word of the Lord. The title of today's message is The Bride of Christ. It's one of the most well-known images the Bible gives us about the church, and it's one of my favorites. As our churches have begun to regather for physical worship, I believe it's important for us to remember who we are as the people of God and to consider the many ways God calls us to find our place and our purpose here in this body, in this family. And so I want to remind you today, brothers and sisters at New Life, you are the bride of Christ. You are the bride of Christ, beautiful and cherished, holy and beloved. We're reminded of this truth every time we attend a Christian wedding. Marriage is a reflection of Christ and his love for the church. When we think about heaven, we are reminded of the great marriage supper of the Lamb. One of my pastors growing up used to remind all the men in his church, every Christian is a bride, and Jesus is our bridegroom. So brothers, that means that we just might be wearing wedding dresses at that great marriage supper of the Lamb. If that's true, I may go for an A-line cut or a mermaid cut uh, based on my little figure, I will look for Elder Alex wearing an elegant Korean hanbok at the, at the wedding feast of the Lamb. But in all seriousness, throughout the scriptures, God refers to his people 
as the bride and himself as the bridegroom. He is our husband and we are his wife. This is not just a New Testament image. It begins in the old. The prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Hosea, as we just read, they develop this theme at length. And if you've read through the prophets, you can imagine that their writings are not always just romantic and blissful. In God's marriage-like relationship with his people, there is beauty and there is brokenness. There is heartbreak and there is hope. Derek Kidner, an Old Testament scholar, he began his commentary on the book of Hosea with the following words. He writes this, It is the people you love who can hurt you the most. One can almost trace the degree of potential pain along a scale, from the rebuff, which you hardly notice from a stranger, to the rather upsetting clash you may have with a friend, to the ache of a parent-child estrangement, or most wounding of all, the betrayal of a marriage, end quote. This is true, isn't it? Our deepest wounds don't come from people we don't know. They don't just come from strangers. They come from those closest to us, closest to our hearts. Brothers and sisters, God has placed his people. He has placed his church at the center of his heart. He's chosen to relate to us as a husband and as a bridegroom because he wants us to know the depth and the intimacy of his love. And he shows us this love in Christ as he prepares his bride, as he redeems his bride, and as he promises to embrace his bride. Those are the three points for today. How God prepares his bride, how he redeems his bride, and how he will embrace his bride. If you've ever read the book of Hosea, it's one of the most somber and profound books in the Bible. Hosea was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel during a time of great idolatry, during a time of great apostasy. Right before the northern kingdom fell in 722 BC, Hosea was ministering as a prophet. And God was speaking to his people through, in this time through the prophet Hosea. And he decided to use Hosea's life He decided to use Hosea's marriage as an analogy of his relationship to his people. And so the book of Hosea begins with these words. The language is strong, and I know we have children here, so uh, I regret not choosing like the NIV or NLT or something like that, but this is uh, the language of the scripture, and may God bless his word. The book begins with this. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go and take your wife to take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. God called Hosea the prophet to marry a harlot. And it's possible that she was a temple prostitute of Baal, the Canaanite god. And to Hosea's credit, he obeys. I don't know how, but but Hosea obeys, and he marries Gomer, a harlot. Gomer was not the kind of woman you would expect a prophet to marry. She was not the kind of woman um, parents expect their sons to bring home for marriage. And you might think, well, okay, rough beginning. This is going to be an amazing story. This might be an amazing turnaround story where Gomer receives Hosea's unconditional love where she realizes her own self-worth and is forever changed. 
That's what we might expect as we read the story. But friends, that's not the case. That's not what happens. Actually, God told Hosea he would have children of whoredom, and this proved to be true. Gomer had three children. The first was with Hosea. His name was Jezreel. But the next two children that Gomer had, they were conceived out of wedlock. Their names were Lo-Ruhama and Lo-Ami, which, mean, which meant no mercy and not my people. Those were their names, no mercy and not my people, such sad and desolate Names. I have two children, and those names were not on the list for consideration. Gomer then leaves her husband. She leaves Hosea, and she lives in bondage to another. She doesn't just leave Hosea for another man. She actually becomes the property of another. God later tells Hosea he must redeem her. He commands Hosea to redeem her, and he does. He buys her back out of bondage with 15 shekels of silver and barley. And the reason why he gave barley was because he didn't have enough silver. Hosea gave everything that he had and barley to buy back and redeem his wife. I can't imagine Hosea's heartache. I can't imagine his shame. I've asked my wife before what would happen if one of us committed adultery. And I think that part of me was fishing to see just if she had this deep capacity to, to forgive and heal if we experienced that kind of brokenness in our marriage. Right? I was kind of fishing for that. But she looked at me, she didn't hesitate, and she said, we'd be over. <laughs> and I'm taking the dog. Right? This is before we had two kids. Once you have kids, you don't, you don't bring up hypotheticals like that. It's too risky. It's over, and I'm taking the dog. The conversation ended there also. Right? I knew if I kept pressing and asking questions, she'd get suspicious. She's like, what are you thinking? Right? What are you trying to do? And so I just, it's over? All right, good. And if we were Hosea, most of us would be done as well. We're not raising Jezreel, our firstborn son, alongside not my people and no mercy. We aren't taking Gomer back after she's cheated on us multiple times, had children out of wedlock and abandoned us. There's just no way. But remember, church, all of this is happening to Hosea because it's an analogy of God's relationship to Israel. What Gomer has done to Hosea, Israel has done to God. And what Hosea must do to redeem Gomer, God will do to redeem his people. After describing Israel as an unfaithful wife who's pursued lesser lovers, God declares he will allure his wife. He promises that he will win her back. And in verse 19, God says this, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. In the ancient world, uh, there were three steps to the wedding process. There was betrothal, ceremony, and celebration. It's much like our wedding experience. There's engagement, ceremony, and celebration, right? But the betrothal was different than just engagement. It was far more than engagement. It was more than something you could just break off if you had a change of heart. Betrothal was the very initiation of marriage, and a couple was considered legally married once they were betrothed. They didn't live together yet, but they belonged to each other. We know in the infancy story of Jesus that Joseph and Mary were betrothed. 
And when Joseph found out and realized that Mary was with child and he was not the father, he, he decided to divorce her quietly. Okay, that's what he had to do. He had to go through the process for a certificate of divorce in the midst of his betrothal. In the Old Testament and the New, the people of God are the betrothed bride of Christ. This is our standing today. We are awaiting the final wedding ceremony, but even so, right now, we are legally bound to God. We belong to him. He is our husband, and we are his wife. And what's astounding about the heart of God is this. God betrothed himself to a harlot. He betrothed himself in steadfast love and mercy to a people who didn't deserve it. He betrothed himself in faithfulness to an unfaithful people. And so here's the painful and sobering reality for us to consider today. What if we, as the bride of Christ, are actually Hosea's wife? We are Hosea's wife. What if we have broken God's heart and chased lesser lovers? And now I must answer, how have we done this? How have we done this? In verse 16, God declares, You will call me my husband and no longer call me my Baal. I will remove the name of Baal from your lips. And what God is referring to is the fact that Israel had taken down the altars of God and set up altars to Baal. Instead of worshiping Yahweh on these altars, they were worshiping a Canaanite God. And this idea of replacement worship, replacement devotion, is at the heart of idolatry. Now, for you and I, we may not go into Canaanite temples. We don't even know what a Canaanite temple looks like. We may not light strange fires or repeat strange seances, but perhaps it happens. Every morning when you wake up and the first thing you do is check your Robinhood app, you check your stocks, you look at your bank account, and your heart is struck with a feeling of security and strength or scarcity and fear. It's not that investing is wrong. It's that the good thing that money can be in our lives has become an ultimate thing. How your money performs is now shaping your heart. It's now shaping and driving your day. Maybe our idolatry takes place as we scroll through LinkedIn, Redfin, True Car, or if you're old school, Auto Trader, right? And we're dreaming of those things that will make us whole, that will make us feel significant that job, that home, that car. And we think we won't be happy. We won't be able to prove to our parents, to ourselves, that we are successful and made it and have made it until we have those things. Maybe our idolatry takes place when we, when we look at our children and we love them and then we project and place all of our hopes, our affections, and our identity upon them. Friends, idolatry takes place wherever we replace God. Idolatry takes place whenever we replace God, when we allow the things of this world to rival the centrality of God in our lives, when we allow the good gifts of God to become ultimate things, ultimate priorities to us. And although we deserve judgment from God for our idolatry, God gives us grace. Although we deserve a certificate of divorce, just like Gomer did, God betrothes himself to us 
with an amazing love. You see, God knows that in order to win back and win over idolaters, he has to do more than just smash our idols. God has to do more than just expose our idols. He has to do more than just threaten us with judgment. God knows that he has to allure us and win us back with his love. This is what God does. He knows if he wants to replace the idols in your heart, the idols in your life, he isn't going to just threaten you and intimidate you. He's actually going to love you out of that idolatry. And this love is perfectly manifested in Jesus Christ. This is our second passage for today, Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 27. It's the ultimate wedding passage right up there with 1 Corinthians 13 and Genesis 2. I told my church I've got three wedding sermons, and it's these three passages. Uh, But Ephesians 5, this is what Paul writes. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What we see in this passage is the fulfillment of God's promise in Hosea 2. That God will pursue his bride in steadfast love. And God does this through his son, Jesus Christ, who pays the bride price to redeem his bride. Hosea gave everything to get Gomer back. Jesus has done the same. Jesus has done the same. Jesus is the greater Hosea, redeeming the harlot church. And what Jesus does is so much more, friends, than simply loving us as we are. That is good news, that that Jesus loves us as we are. He actually makes us what we are not. He actually makes us what we need to become in order to have a relationship with a holy and perfect God. And we see this in Ephesians 5. Jesus is not only pursuing his bride, he's preparing his bride. There are five key verbs that Paul uses to describe what Jesus does for the church. First, he loved the church, setting his heart upon her. Second, he gave himself up for her through his death on the cross. Third, he sanctifies her, making her holy and set apart with his blood. Fourth, he cleanses her with the water and the word. Fifth, he presents her to himself in splendor. He presents her and makes the church glorious. He makes the church holy. He makes the church beautiful. Christian Bale, you may know who he is. He's an actor who is famous for his ability to transform himself, his body, for specific roles. There was a movie he was in called The Machinist. He lost 60 pounds to play that role. He got down to 120 pounds. That's even smaller than me. He gained 40 pounds for his role in the movie American Hustle. He went on intense workout and diet regimens for his role as the Batman. He didn't just wear the muscle suit like George Clooney did, right? He actually wanted the real muscles and the physique for Batman. Sorry, George Clooney, good guy, great actor. I'm not trying to shame him. No body shaming here. Um, But Christian Bale, he's always changing himself to fit into these roles. Now, he's an extreme example, but we know what this is like. We've all tried to adjust ourselves, our lives, to fit and pursue roles that we want. 
We take classes, get degrees, we read books, we diet, we exercise, we make lifestyle adjustments so that we can become the kind of people that we want to be, the best version of ourselves, as our culture likes to say. But friends, when it comes to holiness, when it comes to becoming the bride of Jesus, what can we do? What can we possibly do? There's no amount of dieting or exercise that will prepare us for this relationship. There's no amount of work that we can do to get there. There's no amount of even self-denial that we can achieve to make ourselves presentable before a holy and perfect God. Only the work of Christ will work for us. Only the work of Christ in us is able to make us what we need to become, holy as he is holy. Jesus does this through the supernatural work of the gospel where his righteousness, his perfect righteousness becomes ours, where we trade in our filthy rags and they are washed clean by the blood of Jesus, where our sin is nailed to the cross and counted against us never again because Jesus took it all. Friends, to us, we think that what Hosea did in redeeming Gomer, Hosea's ability to take her back after all that she did, we think that that is an unthinkable act of mercy. It is to me. That is unthinkable. That is crazy. But the argument that God is making through the book of Hosea, it's an argument of lesser to greater. The point is not about Hosea's love. It's about God's love. And God is telling us that his love and his mercy extended towards sinners like you and I. It is greater than Hosea's love for Gomer. His mercy and his love is more radical than what Hosea does towards Gomer. And so friends, hear this. We may balk. We may be shocked at Gomer's sin and rebellion. But God's love goes deeper and he pursues harder, far broken people than that. Adultery is not the end for those who are in Christ. We need to remember that. Divorce, even, is not the end for those who are in Christ. Sex addiction and shame is not the end for those who are in Christ. The gospel tells us if we repent of our sins, when we trust in the substitutionary work of Jesus for us, we are washed white as snow. Jesus is ours, and we are his. And there's nothing that can separate us from that love. Church, Jesus is preparing you, his bride, for your wedding day. Without spot or wrinkle, without blemish or any stain of sin, he is making you the most beautiful bride for the most beautiful wedding. And Revelation 19 gives us a picture of this final marriage and this celebration. It gives us a picture of God's promise to embrace his bride. And the words aren't going to go up on the screen, but I'll read this for us. Revelation 19, verses 6 to 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. 
Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. These are the true words of God. Brothers and sisters, we are the bride of Christ, betrothed in love, and we are all awaiting our wedding day. These are the true words of God. The ceremony will be glorious when Jesus returns, and all of God's people will cry out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And I want to ask an important question here as we look forward to that day, as we wait for that final day. Here's the question. Who is it that prepares the bride for the final wedding? Because we might see tension between Revelation 19 and Ephesians 5. In verse 7, we're told the bride has made herself ready. Married women, you know what that's like. For your wedding day, you have to get yourself ready. The bride has made herself ready. She clothes herself with fine linen, which are the righteous deeds of the saints. But previously in Ephesians 5, we're told Jesus is preparing his bride. Jesus is preparing his bride, Ephesians 5. So which is it, Jesus or us? And the answer is both. The answer is yes. Preparing for our union with Jesus, preparing for our wedding with Jesus, it is a work initiated, secured, and completed in Christ, but it's also a work for us. It's a work that you and I are called to participate in through our obedience and through our good deeds. Friends, you may have heard it said, marriage is compromise. You guys heard that? Marriage is compromise. Maybe even you've said it yourself. You go to a young couple and on their wedding day, you're trying to speak some wisdom into the groom and you're like, dude, marriage is compromise. Happy wife, happy life, right? And the point is this, right? You can't always have your way. You have to let things go if you want a healthy, peaceable marriage. We get that. Okay? We get that. And so sometimes in our marriages, we kind of have this exchange. Our marriages can become transactional. You get one and I get one. Right? Uh, just the other week, uh, my wife texted me. She was like, hey, on Monday, can I, can I have lunch with a friend? We both have Mondays off. And so Mondays end up being like our family day and they're a nice day for us. And she said, hey, can I have lunch with a friend? And I said, yes, of course. Five seconds later, I text back and I said, the week after that, can I play golf on Monday? She texts back. She says, well played. <laughs> yes, right? We, we, we all know what this is like. Marriage is confidence. So we, we kind of go back and forth. You get one and I get one. If you think about your vacations, how many of you get to do exactly what you want to do on your vacation? Like, yeah. When we think about our money, our shared accounts, and we aren't always able to spend our money okay, in the way that we want to because of marriage. We have different priorities, different values, different desires. Okay? Let me offer you something better. Our culture and our world may think, okay, if you, if you understand that marriage is compromised, your marriage will be okay. You can make it work. God's view of marriage is greater. He offers us something better than marriage is compromised. It's actually that marriage is transformational. 
The Christian view of marriage is not one of compromise. It's actually one of transformation where the two become one flesh, where husband and wife begin a new family and they're called to have new values, a shared vision, a shared purpose, and a shared identity together as one. That is the Christian view of marriage. Before my wife and I uh, got married, I was like the ultimate bachelor. Right? And, and, I, and I brought into our marriage my bad eating habits. Uh, when I'm not with her, my staff will attest, if I'm just eating lunch alone, uh, I'll go to 7-Eleven, grab two pepperoni pizzas, a bag of jalapeno chips, and a Coke. Right? I will never bring that home for our family dinner. Right? But my wife and I would always fight about what to eat. Because I would want to eat like Pando Express, L&L, all these unhealthy dude foods. But my wife eats really healthy. She actually told me the other night she never put butter on her bread until she married me. Right? I'm from the South. You've got to have butter on your bread. And so we would always be going back and forth. And especially when she was pregnant with our kids, we've got to eat healthy. And this would stress me out. And I would just be like, what do you want to eat? Because I don't have any healthy options besides soup plantation. And it's gone. Right? It's gone. One day, uh, just a couple weeks ago, we're coming back from a family day at the zoo, and I asked my wife, hey, Alice, do you, you want to go to Porto's and get a Cuban sandwich? And she said, yes. And it was beautiful. There's so much harmony. I'd never had a Cuban sandwich until I married her. And even in the course and journey of me being married to my wife, I've experienced a transformational diet, right? A, a transformation in my diet. I used to never eat sushi, now I love it. All tons of different vegetables, Brussels sprouts, right? I never ate Brussels sprouts, but now I do. Through my union with my wife. My wife and I, we recently um, came into a random uh, tax refund check. I don't know if anyone else got one in the last, maybe you have to be in the low tax bracket like I do, I'm in. Um, but it was like random, it was suspect. You know, you get something from the IRS, you get a little anxious, you're like, is this real, is this, you know... But um, we, we messaged our accountant, and he explained it, and I was like, that's really good. Bachelor Michael, I would want to spend every penny of that on golf. I just would. That's me. Bachelor Alice, she would want to save it up for a trip to France or something like that. But we are, we are one now. And God has been transforming us in marriage. And so we now... It's not about compromising our individual visions for how we want to eat and spend money and go on vacations. It's actually having a shared vision for our lives and for our family. My wife and I, we fought over a lot of things, but by God's grace, we've never fought about money. We've stressed about money, but we've never fought about it. Because early on, we realized that God's called us to stewardship. That's going to be a priority for us. We've realized that we need to save for our family, we need to pay off our debts. And so even with this random, unexpected tax refund check, we just knew what we were going to do. We we're going to save it. Right? We try to get out of our two-bedroom condo in Pasadena. We have a shared vision. And we want to be where God, wants us, or God is calling us and leading us to be. Marriage has transformed our priorities. And has united our goals, friends. Marriage is not compromise. It is transformational. And you and I, we are married to Jesus Christ, who in the incarnation, he took on human flesh. And he lived among us. And he died on the cross so that he could be our true bridegroom. 
In the incarnation, his divinity never changed. Okay? He is immutable in his godhood. But the second person of the Trinity, the eternal word of God, he took on flesh to pursue us and to redeem us. And he's promising that we will be united to him in glory, in full, as a bride is united to her bridegroom. He gave up all of himself for us in love. We have this promise of a beautiful union. And our union with him calls us to love the things that he loves, my friends. To join him in his mission and his purpose for our lives. And so friends, what is Jesus doing with the church? What work is Jesus accomplishing in his bride? And Ephesians 5 reminds us this, he's making us holy. He is making you holy, not just positionally, but practically. He is preparing us for our final wedding by making us more like himself. Friends at New Life, I want to ask you this. Do you share Jesus' passion for your holiness and the holiness of your church? Is holiness important to you? Because it is so important to Jesus that he died for it. He died for your holiness. Unfortunately, some of us don't care. We are coasting on the work of Jesus. We are coasting on the work of Jesus. We love Ephesians 5. Jesus, do it all. Jesus, wash me clean. Right? Jesus, do the work. And if this is you, if you enjoy the work of Jesus cleansing you, but you have no interest in partnering with Jesus and following Jesus to put your sin to death, to turn away from your idols, to repent of your rebellion, it actually means that maybe you haven't been transformed by the love of Jesus. Because love transforms us. The love that Christ offers us in the gospel it transforms our hearts. Some of us think we care. We're like, yes, Mike, I care about holiness. Our blind spot is this. We've actually shaped our definition of holiness around our own performance, around what we can do comfortably and regularly in our lives. And so you may not use curse words and say, oh, yeah, look, you, you, know, you sanctified my tongue. But maybe you have a critical and judgmental heart. You may tithe to church You'll say, look, here is my stewardship. Here is my godliness. But you actually have no care and concern for the poor. You may honor the Sabbath. You're here on Sundays regularly every week, but the other six days, you live like they're entirely yours with no mindfulness and intentionality or purpose for Christ and his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, I believe our churches need to recapture a biblical vision of what it means to be the holy and beloved bride of Christ. We need to recapture what it means to pursue holiness, not because of fear, but because of love. Because we understand that Christ died to make us holy. And it is joy. It is liberating. It is life-giving to live in holiness as Jesus is holy. It's ours, friends. It's yours. I think for so many of us, holiness is kind of like this like, Christian pipe dream. We think about it, we talk about it, we sing about it, but we haven't really actualized it. 
There's no evidence and fruit of that in our lives. Brothers and sisters, it is available to you. It's available to you through faith and repentance as you trust in Christ and then actually start following him day by day, decision by decision. The cross-centered life, I love this quote, the cross-centered life is made and built with cross-centered days. Cross-centered days. Let's start living this out together, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great love that you have for us. We thank you that you have loved a church that is like Hosea's wife. We thank you that in the midst and the reality of our sin and rebellion, you have not forsaken us and instead you have pursued us through your son Jesus. What a gift. What a love. What a gospel. Father, I pray that you would help us to receive that love this morning. I pray that we would not find ourselves simply in bondage and guilt over our, our own idolatries, but instead help us to realize that only Jesus, only the work of Jesus will work for us. And so God, we do come today pleading the blood. We come in the name of Jesus. And we do believe that because of that matchless name, we will not be rejected. We will not be put to shame. We thank you for loving us and calling us your bride. I pray that until we experience and enjoy that final wedding day, God, that we would experience your sanctifying work in our lives, your sanctifying work in our church. Make us more and more like you. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray.